Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven people, companies, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin, broadcasting from my home office in Westchester County, New York. Widely known as the Summer Achievement Gap, or Summer Slide, the loss of academic skills and knowledge that often happens between spring and fall impacts elementary and middle school students alike. But low-income and minority students are particularly vulnerable and by fall can become as much as five months behind their peers if they lose focus before school resumes. Today's guest, Kareem Ablunaga, founder and CEO of education program Practice Makes Perfect, is on a mission to bridge this gap and lessen the disadvantages that can be compounded by the summer slide. After initially coming across the problem during a project at Cornell's in undergrad, he has since built PMP to serve more than 20,000 students across 67 schools across New York City's five boroughs, providing varied programs based on what specific schools need, from regimented classes to free-form enrichment to field trips and other activities. Kareem, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and glad to take part in the conversation. I think it's incredibly timely given we're in the summer and obviously what's been happening with COVID in a lot of the schools. I'm incredibly excited to have you. I don't know how old you are now. You're what, 25, 26? 28. I'm getting up there in age, so. Still. Well, yeah, okay. Well, don't say that to an almost 50-year-old. Okay, let's just go through this for a second because I just want to embarrass you a little bit more in a good way. You're a TED fellow. You're also an Echo and Green fellow, which is how we got to you. At 23, you were named to Forbes 30 under 30 list in education. At 24, you were named to Magic Johnson's 32 under 32 list. In 2016, you were ranked as the top three most powerful young entrepreneurs under 25 in the world, the world's big place. And your TED Talk was named one of the nine most inspiring talks of 2017 with more than a million views so far. And you graduated in the top 10% in your class at Cornell University. Sometimes it's important for third parties and people like me who you just met minutes ago to remind you how fucking awesome you are. And you should just take a moment just to appreciate that because you've achieved a lot at a very young age. So you've set the bar very high for yourself and others. And I want to talk about that bar a little bit because this notion of the summer slide, you started digging into this concept through a project as an undergrad at Cornell. So you're basically a teenager. It eventually became what you've built today, which is this amazing organization called Practice Makes Perfect. Can you talk a little bit about the concept in general And did you think and expect that it would blossom into a mature nonprofit organization impacting more than 20,000 kids and actually not just achieving educational parity where there is disparity, but now many of these kids come back to school in the fall, let's just say pre-COVID, we're going to address that as well, ahead of where they were when they left school in spring? I try not to think too much about what's already behind me and sort of focus on like what's in the future. I always recognize that I've had an immense amount of privilege, even given where I grew up and how I grew up. I have had a lot of amazing mentors. And as you cited, a lot of incredible organizations who've helped not only like build me up, but helped me build an incredible organization. And when I started out no chance in a million years that I imagined it'd be the way that it was. And actually, we started as a nonprofit, but today we're a public benefit corporation. And at the time, I was going down this financial services route and thought, 
I'm going to make all of this money as a banker one day. And so I'm going to need a nonprofit to like give all of this money to. And so what better nonprofit than a nonprofit that I'm going to start to help my own community? Wasn't thinking one day this will be its own thing at the scale that it's at now, but I'm incredibly grateful for the vision that we've been able to build. And our goal is it goes beyond summer. Summer is two thirds of the achievement gap. And that's why we've started there. For me, it's always been about the disparity and how people look at people of color, people who are low income, people who are immigrants, people who are first generation, and sometimes try and underplay their potential. So, so much of this for me is about the potential that's just untapped and trying to level the experience so that kids who, regardless of where they're born, have an equal opportunity of achieving success. And I think that's the name of the game that doesn't currently exist today. Folks who have equal ambition born in two different places don't have equal opportunity at realizing that ambition. And so, so much of what we're trying to do is make sure that there is parity there and not just on these standardized tests. Did this just start out like you're in a class and you're with a group of other kids and you needed to come up with a project? Is that how it started? Or was it something bigger than that? I did my freshman year at Baruch. I wound up transferring to Cornell. I applied to two schools coming out of high school, MIT because I saw it on Goodwill Hunting, <laughs> and then Baruch because it was a local business school, right? And growing up where I grew up, you were going to be either a basketball player, a rapper, or an entrepreneur. Those are your options. I wasn't ready to play D1 basketball. I couldn't rap. And so I was going down the business route, and Baruch was a business school. I scored a 1770 out of 2,400 on the SATs. It put me in the 95th percentile in my high school, but in the 70th percentile nationwide. And so when I didn't ultimately get into MIT, hindsight is 2020, like rightfully so. I didn't have the scores, wasn't positioned well, didn't have any of the connections, but got a 4.0 my first semester at Baruch, linked up with an advisor, started thinking about transferring. I had a friend who was at the architecture program at Cornell and a former boss who had a friend who had gone up there and encouraged me to go up and visit. That was ultimately what sparked the transfer. But in the process of transferring, I was like, oh my God, Cornell is so expensive. How am I going to pay for that? And so I started looking at all these scholarships. And at the time, Coca-Cola had teamed up with the United Negro College Fund, and they had put together a scholarship competition that was going to pay $10,000 to any student who came up with a solution for the achievement gap that involved some sort of corporate intervention. And at the time, I knew nothing about the achievement gap. I knew nothing about how corporations work, but I obviously wanted $10,000 to transfer to Cornell. And so I started doing all of this research. I didn't ultimately win the scholarship, but the numbers weren't just numbers to me. They were real people. It was my siblings in my household, the kids I was playing football with in high school. It was my community, ultimately. It wasn't just some economists looking at the data and saying, oh, 11% of first-generation college students graduate over six years. I was sitting there and saying, oh my God, is it going to take me six years to graduate from college? And oh man, I can't let that be the case. I need to graduate. I didn't win the scholarship. I let it go. I got to Cornell. And then Ernst & Young had this Your World, Your Vision competition where you submitted a proposal and had an opportunity to win some funding to get a project going. And I started to think back to the research that I had started to uncover in my search for the achievement gap and trying to narrow those disparities just as a way to do something for my community. And applying for the competition, put together the proposal for Practice Makes Perfect. And at the time it was called, I will learn dot, 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 because I can. And I share that because 
I didn't come up with the great name that it has today. It was more so named out of the frustration that folks were looking at people growing up in my environment and saying that you can't learn or that you're not capable or you have a genetic disorder that predisposes you to being able to learn less. And so I was coming up with that statement and in some way had my life start to evolve as being a testament to the exact opposite of that. As I was achieving, as I was doing more, it was a lot less about me and more about trying to prove what was possible. I always have this, it's a fake chip on my shoulder where I feel like I'm performing and delivering and doing more to help unwrite so many of the broken narratives about kids growing up like I grew up. And so, yeah, it started to blossom and evolve from there. Had this idea, started pitching it to people. We applied for the competition. Again, didn't win. Have this track record of continuing to apply even through failure. And I think it was a year or two later when we finally got the funding. But once we had the framework on paper, then it just became a matter of executing. And a lot of the things I thought we had to pay for, I realized they were driven by people. And so I started to bring people into the mix who could help us build a website, who can help us think about curriculum, who can help us build relationships. Um, And I leveraged a lot of people time because that was free to do something meaningful and good. There's so many places to go with this. So I love the fact that you were inspired by these opportunities around fellowship, scholarships, and grants. And even though you didn't win them, you stuck with your vision. There's a lot to be learned there. And the other thing I wanted to ask you, and hopefully it's not too personal, I did listen to your 2017 TED Talk, which is great. It's six minutes, and it feels longer in a good way, interestingly, not in a bad way, just because it's very fulsome. It's like a very fulsome six minutes. You said, and hopefully I get all this right, you were the second oldest of seven children, single mom. You attended a high school where the graduation rate is 55% and only 20% actually go to college. So you didn't have necessarily a Kareem to help guide you, to help lift you up and tell you you can do more and you can impact others. How did you, in that environment, how did you lift yourself up and stay focused And really, at the time, this was the foundation for kind of who you are today. How did you do that? Yeah, there were a couple of pivotal moments. One was my father being diagnosed and ultimately passing away from cancer. And that happened right around my freshman year of high school. The second one was meeting this guy named Eddie Rodriguez, actually, who was running an organization at the time called Rewarding Achievement. It was the first time I've seen a person of color who looked like me who was saying, education is your way out. People tell you that your whole life when you're growing up in the schools that I went to and they come into your classes and they ask you who's going to college. And it's as part of the same spiel like as the D.A.R.E. program when they're telling you not to do drugs and not to have unprotected sex. And so in the midst of those conversations, there's always the education is your way out, but you don't really hear it. You hear it. You're not actually listening to it because it comes in and you're processing, but not really, because it's not the future that you see for so many other people. But this guy looked like me and said, education's your way out. He went to Columbia undergrad and NYU law school. And I just, I started to believe it. And for better or for worse, I took that in. And then the next barrier was around being able to actually ask for help. So a question I got from one of my other role models and mentors as I was getting ready to graduate from Cornell was, what was the difference between you and so many of the other kids who didn't make it out? And at the time, I started to talk about opportunity. 
and I understand business and most business people understand opportunities. And the reality is as a business person, you don't take every single opportunity that comes your way because not every opportunity is a good fit or a good investment or aligns with what you're doing. But if you're growing up in a lower income environment, there aren't as many opportunities. And so if you don't take an opportunity, even though it may be the right opportunity, you're sort of SOL. And so I sat there and made this case for more opportunity. But then later on in conversations with mentees who I had like coached and guided through high school who had gone into Cornell, realized that there was more to that. One mentee in particular started his freshman year. I met with him right before he was getting in and for better or for worse, gave him all the answers. The school itself, avoid this professor, avoid those clubs, participate here and do this because I had just gone through it. I mean, I had gone through in a way that I felt was really good. And so we're checking in the first couple of weeks, weeks leading up to school. And then eventually he goes radio silent. And I'm continuing to check in each month, just trying to see nothing's coming up. And I'm like, well, you know, I remember being a student. First year is busy. It's taxing. Let me not overwhelm him. Months later, I guess almost at the end of his second semester, he reaches back out and he's like, Kareem, I just want to give you an update. I'm finishing my second semester at a junior college. I was put on academic probation, basically flunked out my first semester, but I'm on track again now and should be fine. I'm heading back in the fall. And I remember just thinking to myself, what went wrong or where did it break down? And what was the difference between me and my mentee at that point? I mean, I realized between me and him that I was never ashamed to ask for help. And this is just a small segment of the TED Talk, but there's shame, there's embarrassment, and all those feelings are there regardless of where you are in life or your socioeconomic status. And there's a lot of pressure that you feel when you have to ask someone for help because you're sort of saying, I'm weak or I don't know or I need to bother or burden you. And these are all common feelings and I feel them too. But I think the thing that changed for me in high school was that I realized that my getting help, my doing better had nothing to do with me and more to do with me being able to help my community and help my family and help so many other kids growing up like me. And so the second I internalized that and said, you know what, this help to better me isn't really about me. It's about becoming the best version of me so I can be a catalyst or I can be a pass-through for all the great things that could happen for my community and for my family. I became a lot less ashamed, a lot less embarrassed, and a lot more okay with getting the support that I needed. Because oftentimes people will say, well, now I owe someone something. I don't want to owe someone something. That's anti to the poverty mindset where people think we need a handout. No one wants a handout. Even when they need it, no one wants a handout. No one's going to ask for it. And so... I process that differently. And I don't think you're more or less susceptible or better at asking for help if you're rich or you're poor. But if you don't ask for help and you're growing up poor, you're a lot less likely to get it than if you're growing up rich, where the help may find you when people notice that you're struggling or that you need it. My guess is too that when you are growing up poor and you don't have those same opportunities or privilege, you're asking for help to navigate into overcome a system, because it's really systemic, isn't it? In many ways, a system that is not necessarily on purpose or by design or because of malintent, but it is a system that does not necessarily help you achieve. It actually does the opposite. So that's part of the ask. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have my own qualms with the system itself. If you could wave a magic wand and fix some of the systemic issues. I think a lot of them are rooted in the fact that we have a system of unchecked capitalism. Then when you think about the history of our country and how it was started and founded on free labor, 
you start to go back and understand why, like why was a country built on free labor? And you realize, well, capitalism actually profits more when labor costs are down. And so you start to realize that a lot of where we are is not because of capitalism, but because of an unchecked capitalistic system. And I think that if we do one day want to fix a lot more of our ills at a faster pace, it's going to be going back and trying to redesign the economic system that we're deploying as a country. And you mentioned earlier that summer school accounts for two thirds of the achievement gap. So you started there. And also in your TED talk, you noted that, and I thought this is interesting, I never quite thought of it this way, that the perception around summer school for a student is that it's punishment. And for a teacher, it's babysitting and that these kids are bad or they're there for a reason and it's no good reason. They're just trying to catch up or because, full disclosure, I had to go to summer school throughout all of middle school because I was not achieving the way I should have been achieving. How do you tackle and how did you, because it's a huge and heavy lift to change your perception around summer school, especially in the mind of a child. And how did you flip the script on that so that summer school is seen as not to try to get parity, but actually it's to gain major advantage when you come back in fall. And that advantage is enduring and lasting for your later years of education. I actually have a longer piece on like the history of summer school because I was so fascinated by it. Back in the day, I don't know how far back you want to go, but summer school was used as a tool for kids who wanted to get ahead. Oh, really? I had no idea. Yeah. It was never really designed to be punitive until the, I think, early 90s or something along there. There may have been some situations or scenarios where there may have been summer school or some parents who got involved and got kids additional support. But for the most part, it was a thing that you only had access to when you got to high school and it was really to get ahead for the following year. It wasn't until the late 1990s when we started to realize that there was such a large disparity in achievement and not sort of calling it for what it's worth that like the school year also exacerbated a lot of the problems. We said, what if we use the time to help kids get ahead? Only because kids are ending the school year not on grade level. They're ending the school year not on grade level and we're just promoting them anyway. Then what does that say about our academic system? They said, you know what, let's prevent all of these kids who are not on grade level from moving on to the next grade. And that idea would have been horrible. The late Chancellor Harold Levy was like, the research here absolutely contradicts that. Every time you hold the kid back, they're 25% less likely to graduate. Public shame, being older, you hold them back twice, they're now more likely to drop out than graduate. And our system does a really bad job of being individualized and personalizing it. So oftentimes when we hold a kid back, they're just repeating everything they didn't get the first time instead of filling in the gaps that they should have needed. So all of the research says promote the kid and figure out how to fill in the gaps after. But a lot of your conservative mayors at the time said, well, social promotion is essentially what you're doing and we don't believe in that. The chancellors came back and said, okay, as a concession, we'll make all of the kids go to summer school. They'll be so miserable that they're gonna work harder the following school year. And so obviously when you hear that out loud today, you know that's such a silly proposition. Kids don't react well or positively to negative intervention like that. And so from the very beginning, the design was flawed. And the chancellors sort of saw that was their only way to level with a lot of the mayors. And they knew the test the kids would take at the end of the summer wouldn't come back in time anyway to hold them back. It'd be a way to just continue to promote them. But in the process created a stigma around learning over the summer. And actually, the stigma holds less with kids than it does with adults. And so I actually find myself battling with the adults and the school administrators more than I do with children who 
I know we think that they all have a negative perception of summer school, but some of your kids in elementary school don't think that way. Let me just ask this. How did you convince... New York City is the largest school district in the country, right? Maybe even in the world, maybe in the world. China, I think Hong Kong and parts of Beijing probably have larger systems, but okay, we definitely have the most organized, even though it doesn't seem that way, school system. So how did you convince one of the world's largest, one of the more powerful public school systems to adopt this program and to take a chance on you? Well, the one thing about the most organized system is that it's also the most decentralized. Individual schools actually have the ability to make their own decisions about what summer would look like. As much as I want to say it was a top-down thing, it wasn't. It was actually a bottom-up approach, going out there, sharing the story, sharing the research. The funny thing is that every single school leader and educator knows about the summer slide. So you're not educating them on the fact that kids forget things over the summer. Yeah, you may be adding the nuances around the number of months and how it compounds when kids go back. But generally, most teachers know they spend a bunch of time reteaching old material. And most school leaders know that kids finish a school year not being on grade level, but no one believed in the current establishment of summer school. Then it just became a game of competing priorities. How do you convince someone that this is a better investment than investing in an after-school club or a Saturday academy? And for us, it was all about targeting and understanding what the individual schools were doing first, and then hopefully building off of that. And then by differentiating and catering to individual school preferences, that's been the fastest way. But yeah, we're in 67 schools, but we're in a system where there's over 1,700. We're still only a drop in the bucket. Does the summer slide now become the COVID slide? How has COVID impacted the achievement gap as it widened it and made it even more difficult? Yeah, McKinsey just put out a report in June talking about how in your most distressed communities and your lower income neighborhoods, the losses when kids finally do return back to school will probably be close to nine or 10 months for Black and Latino children, with it being more moderate for kids who are affluent in the four to seven month range. But that was before school was virtual for the fall. And I think we're in a period now where a lot of school districts have pulled the plug on returning in person. I think Chicago just announced this morning that they're going virtual to start the school year. So those losses are only going to continue to compound. And the achievement gap is going to continue to widen as you have more affluent families investing resources and building these pod models and getting supplemental education. It's going to be really hard to continue to compete. Yeah. So how have you been handling, you said that you're supporting about 10,000 kids right now this summer. Yeah. How have you been teaching them? Has it been a hybrid model? Is it in person, but at a distance? Is it uh, purely virtual? Yeah. So we were lucky enough to build on our existing relationships with the Heckscher Foundation for Children and the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Foundation. So they ultimately gave us a grant of a little bit over a million and a half dollars to support 5,500 kids with live instruction and another 4,900 with asynchronous content. We designed a six-week summer program. Sessions were an hour and a half, like live instruction three times a week in the live group. And then in our asynchronous group, they got the video content. And then we did about an hour of independent learning that was required five days a week. So half an hour on a reading platform and half an hour on a math platform that we've worked with. And as much as it was also about serving children, we were also in it to learn because this was a completely new space, right? We had only been doing virtual instruction at scale for about three months. I and mean, this was our opportunity to launch a large scale initiative. 
we leveraged a lot of our alumni network. So folks had been teaching with us in previous years because we wouldn't have a lot of time to do training. Ultimately got the commitment, I think it was like the last week of May. We know what it's like to launch a 10,000 student school district <laughs> in the span of a month. My hope is that schools will take more direction or be more decisive, at least at the political level. I know there's there's a bit of a standstill on whether or not we're going in person or staying virtual because there's stimulus money that might be tied to it. But the sooner we can make a decision, whether it's in person or virtual, the better. I try to lean away from what the right answer is. I don't know, frankly. But yeah, there's been a lot of learning in that. We've had kids who are coming online who are engaging, and then just as many who were in live instruction who have now opted for something more asynchronous. And then those in the asynchronous group who are asking for more live instruction. And so I don't think there's going to be a model that is virtual in the fall that's going to work without both some combination of them. We're already seeing this in the group that is live. You're seeing five times more engagement on the follow-up and independent homework tasks, whether or not we're assigning the right things, whole other question, but there's more engagement when you have live instruction that's being used as some form of accountability than when you don't have it. But attendance is 75 to 80%. Even in a group size of six where we have it, it's very hard to get consistency amongst your group cohort. So if every single day someone takes a turn being absent, you're only meeting three times a week, or one day you have three kids, another day you have five, you actually almost never have the same class composition. And in a group size of 30, it's almost impossible to happen over the course of a year. And the reasons why kids aren't showing up are all legitimate. Family member getting diagnosed with COVID. COVID is still there. It's still very real. Other health issues in the households, internet going out as we saw the storm recently. And so you almost need to have an asynchronous component that kids can reference after if they're not able to make live instruction. So as we're thinking about the fall and thinking about what we do, if we decide to go virtual, we need to make sure that we have both of those ready to go. For children. Is access to the internet and Wi-Fi as big of an issue in your world and working with New York City public schools as it is in some of the more rural communities in America? Yeah, I don't know what it looks like in a lot of the rural areas. And so I'm partially ignorant to what's happening there. I think a lot more of my time is focused on urban and what's happening in the urban communities. And for the most part, we are seeing that folks have access to Wi-Fi. I think the bigger challenge has been device access and device accessibility. And so it's often you either have a device and then you have Wi-Fi or you don't have a device. You may have Wi-Fi, you may not have it. You may have access to a hotspot. And surprisingly, some of the bigger challenges this summer have been where folks have had their device and their camera breaks halfway through the summer or someone else needs to use a device. In a lot of cases, the device is meant for schoolwork because it's given out by the schools, but you can't really control that. And we have to be mindful of the fact that that is the only device in a lot of these households. So there's competing priorities on that side. And then the devices are sometimes locked by the schools. So schools are saying these are the only things you can access. And so now if you're trying to participate in a supplemental program, you actually can't because all of the channels are hardwired to prevent you from accessing anything outside of your own school's network. So we've started to see some challenges with that, but one of the conditions like participating in the program that we ran this summer was that they had to have their own device and Wi-Fi. And for the most part, folks had it, I'd say about 90% were able to like follow through on that commitment. There were 10% who said that they did and then realized halfway through the summer didn't or at the start actually didn't have it or misunderstood. But I think the next piece is how do we make sure everyone always has a working device so that they can access content and access material? 
And what's the overall vision for the organization? It's been around for several years now. I said in my opening, you've supported more than 20,000 kids across nearly 70 schools in the New York City. There's a lot of daylight. You've made an incredible impact, but there's a lot of work to do. So what's next? What's the big vision here? We're working on building an institution really that levels the playing field for low-income children. And so if I can put it in one sentence, that's what it would be. When I think about an institution, I think about stability. I think about something that provides consistency. So there's a lot more predictability and something that creates value. Because ultimately, if there's no value being created, there's no reason for you to exist in that area. That's the vision. And when I try to bring it to life for people, I try and tell them to envision what Nike or Netflix or Disney have done in their respective industries. And what I'm trying to do is take a lot of those best practices and bring them into the field of urban education. And so can we ultimately build an organization and a company that has that same sized impact in education? Some of these other larger companies have sort of done in their own industries and in the process, train incredible teachers, continue to add incredible content, inspire kids to want to learn. I mean, I wouldn't be here if education didn't help me get out of poverty. Even though it isn't as effective as it used to be, it's still our society's largest lever for changing socioeconomic mobility. Until we find a better lever, like this is where we're spending our time because it is just as much about mobility as it is about education, just as much about economic equality as it is about closing the achievement gaps. And so those two things are not separate. And it's a large part behind why our company is not a nonprofit anymore. In 2016, we went from a 501c3 to a public benefit corporation. Nonprofits have done a really incredible job at solving social problems. For-profits tend to solve pain points. And I think the future is the genesis between the two of them. How do you solve a pain point while being able to achieve sustainability and address a large social problem? And I think that's the nexus that I want us to continue to operate in as we're growing and as we're scaling. So does the customer, I hate to use those terms, but we can pivot towards that a little bit, ultimately become school districts. And then the beneficiaries obviously are students, their children, and eventually communities. Because if you improve education, then there's a knock-on effect. Is a daisy chain. It helps everybody. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. And, and actually, it's the low-income school administrator. So in New York City and larger areas, it's the low-income school districts. So when we design, when we do anything, we're thinking about how does this support and improve and enhance the life of the low-income school administrator? Because we know we don't have direct access to a lot of the kids and the families we want to serve. And actually, their schools are their point of stability right now. And so if you want to reach the community I'm trying to serve at scale, it is oftentimes going to be through a school. And so the only way that happens is if you're serving the school leader. So as we think about what we're rolling out, what we're doing, we're always thinking, is this something that is going to enhance and improve the life of the low-income school administrator? If it has broader applicability, great, we'll make it more widely accessible. But if it doesn't, we won't even touch it. And to your point, or what the point I mentioned earlier about these pods, we've got a bunch of people who've reached out. We have 200 people who are teaching this summer. We obviously have a teaching staff. But our low-income school administrators are not ever going to be in the market for a pod model. And as we think about the low-income children that they're serving, they don't have the space in their households to come in there and run a pod. They're not as organized because of language barriers or because of the other constraints in the communities that they're in. For us, it doesn't make sense. But are there things that we can continue to implore and share more widely? Like we're working now on building a better virtual classroom space. 
again, designing for low-income schools because they're often left out of the design process. If there's larger applicability there, great, we'll make it accessible to more schools. But that's how we're thinking. How do we design and create solutions for low-income school administrators that will have a positive impact outside of that? And if they don't, and they only serve the low-income schools and school administrators, that's still a victory for us because that's who are ultimately out there to help. Yeah. And it sounds too, though, that the model you're building should be able to have some sort of scalability throughout the year, not just for summer school. Yeah. And I'm actually excited about what we did this summer. In so many ways, we were able to bring down the cost of operating a summer program. And I think there's a lot of benefits to being in person. I'm hoping we'll walk away from this pandemic. And I think the words of essential and non-essential will be more instilled in our vocabulary. And as we think about remedial learning, we think more about that being in the non-essential bucket and doing more of those things maybe online. And as we think more about the enrichment, maybe then we're thinking more about, okay, well, this needs to be in person. And so the Saturday academies and the summer schools, the old summer schools will start to disappear because those things can be handled online. And then what we'll see is more enrichment, more activities to help stimulate children's minds and just greater accessibility, even if it's less frequent. The dosages that we were offering this summer, I think were appropriate. I mean, we're going to be surveying parents and surveying our fellows to learn more in the next couple of weeks, but that is going to make learning more accessible. And there is a percentage of kids who will respond purely to asynchronous learning. About 20% of the kids we're seeing will engage with very little additional direction. How do we tap that opportunity? How do we make sure that 20% is getting the support that they want and they can move faster? How do we enable them to move faster without holding them back in our traditional school system? And then ultimately use the additional resources that might be left over to support the kids who need more handholding and need additional instruction. Last question. This seems so simple at face value, but I'd love for you to kind of unpack it for us a little bit. The distinction between empathy and sympathy, because you talk about that quite a bit. And hopefully I get this right. You're saying we need to focus more on empathy and not sympathy necessarily. Yeah. And also thinking about empathy and sympathy, I sometimes realize that sympathy is a precursor. Uh huh. It's a bridge, maybe. Right? Yeah. Like we can start by being sympathetic. And when people ask me, how did you know that education was the problem that like you needed to focus on? And for me, it's the sense of moral obligation that I get from the work that I'm doing. I don't wake up and tell everyone today's the day you should all be invested in education because there are a myriad of different social responsibilities and problems out there. Everything from poverty to hunger to child sex trafficking. And these are all legitimate issues that people need to be thinking about. And on my side, it's more about how do you commit your life to something that you really understand? How do you commit your life to something that you can appreciate in a different light? And I think when we look from a sympathetic lens, sometimes we only see deficits. When we look at things from an empathetic lens where we're able to relate or we want to relate or we try and have a shared experience, we look at things from both the deficit and the asset perspective. What are the unique strengths that exist here that we're able to leverage? What's special about the communities that we're in? What is incredible about the resiliency that exists here? One of my favorite authors, Dr. Bettina Love, talks about how we use the word grit and we use the word grit to try and pigeonhole or describe kids of color or African-American youth in particular. And she's like, grit, why are we talking about grit? These kids are the descendants of slaves, people who've worked over a century for free. And you're out here asking whether or not they have a grit. Obviously they have grit. And when you talk about achievement gaps, you're leaving out the fact that they haven't had the same start. There's almost a hundred year plus head start that a lot of white and middle-class students have had. 
So I think when we think through an empathetic lens, we look at the whole picture and we don't instead say, oh, poor child, or because of this, they can't do this, or these are all the things that are wrong. That we say, okay, we understand the full picture and, and here's the potential. How do we unleash the potential given what we have access to? I'm glad you mentioned that about grit. I feel about grit in some ways of when people, when clinical psychologists talk about closure, there's no such thing as closure. And I think that when you look for closure, you're only going to set yourself up for disappointment. You just have to own it. But with grit, it all is because of that Tammy Duckworth. Is it Tammy Duckworth? Angela Duckworth. Angela Duckworth. Sorry. Yeah. Tammy Duckworth's a politician. She hates being the grit lady, by the way. And- I'm sure because it became something that became trendy and like a fad probably is now not anywhere near of what the point that she tried to make in the book. It became a little bit too pop culture when we're really talking about is durability and resilience and enrichment and hope and optimism and all these other things that we're all looking for, but especially those in a lower income community, like you said, who start at a disadvantage. And I think you're right, a hundred year disadvantage, if not more. I'm glad that you raised that. I'd love to have you back on because I just feel like in six months, you're operating kind of at like this dog ear pace, which is a really good thing. And I think in six months, you have done the work of many, many years. And that I think, especially now, out of terrible things like a pandemic, sometimes innovative approaches that existed pre-pandemic, they surface. And I think this is one that could probably be used both in a pandemic and a non-pandemic state to really advantage everyone, and especially these communities that you talk about. So I appreciate that. I appreciate everything you've done, especially at such a young age. The bar is very high, and I appreciate you setting it so high. And what is the best way to stay in touch with your progress, as well as potentially get involved with the organization itself? You can find us online, www.practicemakesperfect.org. We also have a Twitter, an Instagram, a LinkedIn profile or account. So feel free to follow us on any of those. And I'd be more than happy to come back on in a few months. Like you alluded to, I I don't think the pandemic necessarily disrupted a lot of things. I think it has accelerated a lot of the changes that were already in the pipeline, like moving the teacher out of the role of being the center for all knowledge to becoming more of a facilitator, forcing us to think more strategically about grade levels. What does a grade level mean now when kids are learning at such different paces? But we've been talking about this for so long. Online learning, the concept of it isn't new. So it's just how do we now tune in to a lot of those changes and actually support them? Because they were happening before and they're now going to happen even faster. Yeah. I mean, the whole education system, regardless whether or not you are in an urban or a rural environment, is all based on labeling and boxes and linearity. Humans are not and should not be labeled. They should be not put into neat little boxes. And learning is not linear. And I think that you're attacking all those things plus, plus, plus in an incredible way. So, Kareem, thank you for joining us on Brand on Purpose. Thank you for having me. And I wish you and your organization all the best. And I look forward to having you back on soon. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Take it easy. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com, follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast, and learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Mm-hmm.